Hi, my name is Divya and welcome to Articulate. This is a podcast for students of art that I have started in order to create an archive and a community for them to dip into for ideas and inspiration. I speak with artists across continents and genres about themselves and how they see their art in today's world context. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Sarah Byers. Sarah is a London-based artist, musician and museum educator. Her practice is based on the truth to materials tenet of modern architecture, which holds that any material should be used where it is more, most appropriate and that its nature should not be hidden, disguised or concealed. From reclaimed and re, uh, recycled material to food products, metal, wood, plastics, resins and textiles, Sarah's practice creates the fantastical from the mundane while addressing wider issues of empire, class and accessibility. Sarah holds a BA from the Camberwell College of Art and an MA from the Royal College of Art in Fine Art Sculpture. She was a fellow in sculpture at the Cheltenham Art College and at the University of Glamorgan. She was awarded the Sogat Prize, the Kay Foundation Prize by uh, Rachel Whiteread and has exhibited in the UK and Europe. Sarah has taught on many courses both in the UK and internationally and is an artist educator regularly working for museums and galleries, delivering master drawing courses, uh, classes at UCL and dev devising education pro projects for the v and the Saatchi Gallery. Hi Sarah, how are you? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Um, I just thought that, you know, my last three years in Wimbledon, um, I was the only lone painting student working for working with sculpture projects, projects, and you helped me so much that I must find out more about your own practice and let my listeners know about you. And uh, I was so impressed with your um, bio data and I didn't know about your price prices and your residencies and your various uh, grants. So it's great to have you on the podcast and um, welcome. Oh, <laughs> That's all I'll say. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, I just, we just, you know, I just start off the podcast by talking about a little bit about your background. And I know that um, you're quite close with your parents and they live close, um, somewhere close by. You keep visiting them on the weekend. So why don't you let us know a little bit about yourself? Okay. Um, well, my parents um, live in Swindon in Wiltshire, which is down in the West Country. Uh, which is quite a long way away, actually. It's about 100 miles away. Oh, is it? <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I spend a lot of time going from down the uh, the M4 to see them. Yeah. Um, so I grew up there. Um, it's quite a small town. Um, it's it's quite white, actually, as it happens. So it's not very multicultural. Mm. Um, and I absolutely loved... Um, that was one of the things I really loved about mo moving to London. Um, to begin with, it was kind of quite intense being in, in a place where there were just people from all over the world that you'd see, you know, sit next to on the bus and then never see again. Whereas in Swindon, you'd see the same old people walking around the town that you were at school with and, you know, people that your family knew and that kind of stuff. So it was quite a culture shock coming to London. So do you prefer um, this or that? <laughs> the small, that? Do you prefer the small town culture? Or do you prefer this oh, anonymity I, of I this? I went back, you know, I came here and I, I never went back, basically, right. like London. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I um, decided to, I, I, I was the first person in my family to go to university. Um, and what I did, first of all, was a foundation course in the town, actually in Swindon. Mm. 
Um, and that was amazing because foundation courses, uh, I don't, I, got, I always get this feeling that they're under threat. I know that there aren't as many as there were then, um, but they are really a brilliant sort of diagnostic way of working out whether you're going to be a 3D person, a painter, a graphic artist. Um, and, you know, you kind of do projects of all those different sort of um, disciplines. Yeah. And it's it's just brilliant. It's a really, really useful um, thing to do. I just think everyone should do them. I found uh, it to be so intense, my, my, found, my, my version intense. of foundation. Yeah. yeah, they're intense because they have this... They have a beginning and an end, very sort of defined outcome, which is, you know, you know, you either go on to um, higher and further education um, or you don't, if you don't apply yourself and then put in the work to get a portfolio together. Right. I mean, lots of people do them and then do other other kind of career paths. But mm. if you want to do a, if you want to apply, you really do have to put the work in. Mm. So they're great to teach on and I've taught on a few as well. Um yeah, and because they people just do the work and you can suggest things to students, they go away and they've done them in a couple of days, whereas, you know, sometimes that can go on for, for a lot longer on a degree course. I know. Yeah. So, and then you wanted to go on to a, a degree course in London. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I had um, one really great sculpture lecturer. I, I had this dilemma about whether to do ceramics or sculpture. And uh, also about whether I could apply for a London course, because in Swindon, which is, is kind of in those days was much smaller than it is now. Um, people from that place just didn't go to London colleges. Mm. Um, and it was quite a class issue, um, particularly an art college with, uh, you know, sort of no defined sort of career path coming out the other side of it. To be a, a sort of from a, a working class background and go into that. Um, yeah, it was um, it was quite a challenge to do mm. that. But luckily, my parents just um, they really supported me, mm. and so um, the the sculpture lecturer I had um, had been at the Royal College years and years before. He he was um, actually about to retire, but he he just said, um, "Why don't you give the London College a go? You know, I mean, someone's got to get in, and you know, you, you you've kind of put the work in. Give it a try." So I applied and I got in and there was me and um, actually someone called Sophie Tilson, who's the daughter of Joe Tilson. Um, she got into Chelsea and mm. between us, we were the only two out of, well, let's say at least 30 students to get into London colleges. Wow. Um, yeah. And that's how London colleges were then. You know, they just weren't taking students from, uh, they were taking lots of posh London kids, basically. I know it's wow. controversial to say that, but that is the case. Oh, it was like a conscious, like a class divide then. I, I think it was, yeah, I do. I, I just think people from my, my sort of background just didn't apply. Mm. So they, you know, they didn't, had no choice but to take um, students off, off uh, London foundation courses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which was, my, you know, which made up most of my, my degree course, actually, with uh, one or two exceptions. Right. So did you enjoy the, the sculpture course in, uh, in Camberwell then? I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was um, one of the best times of my entire life because um, the first six months of that course, partly why I chose it, was because there were loads of projects and you they took you through um, kind of quite a traditional, quite solid um, sculpture background. So you learned to do stone carving, wood carving, casting techniques. Um, we There was a foundry there which was great because you got to use all the different kind of foundry techniques as well. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of drawing, quite traditional drawing. And then it, after the first year, a lot of the those lecturers retired. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it, it had been very male, um, 
very sort of middle class um, lecturers there. Uh, I'm saying that I'm generalising. There were one or two that weren't from that background, but uh, I was really aware of it, I think. And I didn't see any female lecturers there. Mm. Um, and then it changed and we started to get people in. So Phila Dabalo was um, a really great tutor and um, it was Brian Catling, Nigel Rolfe. So were they um, tutors or the were they visiting like um, artists lecture, lectures that you had? We had lots of visiting lecturers, yeah. Oh. Um, we had... Uh, three or four a week and um, sometimes it would be a bit intense mm. um you know compared to how st- what students have now mm. there would be someone coming in on a wednesday who would then do a um they would do a talk in the evening after that we'd all go to which was amazing mm. so they'd come around and do um tutorials during the day and that was everybody if there was someone um having a show in london then the college would ask them to come and talk to us oh. and we saw so many great artists there it was unbelievable yeah really great really fabulous time right and um how was your degree show i mean i know it's a long time but um how, what what was it like what were you um what were your themes do you do you want to talk about it or yeah yeah mm. so i i think at that point i had started to really develop my language or recognize my my language which was very materials based mm. very true to materials letting materials speak for themselves having lots of metaphors um and over the three years i think i'd really worked that out um with the help of a lot of really great um teaching um and a lot of experimenting and a lot of playing around and it not being about the the outcome but about being about the process mm-hmm. um and i think i had i just it really came together for my degree show so i'd had i'd worked really hard and i'd kind of made some some sort of discoveries that that kind of just all came together in my my sort of show so that i yeah i i was i was on a roll really i sort mm. of just discovered a couple of things about using materials in a certain way that yeah i don't know it just it just happened and i and i yeah i got a first and i was just thrilled to bits because i just really wasn't expecting it um mm. yeah and then what brought me down to earth with a bang was not then getting into an ma um because i kind of just wanted to gallop through i'd had such a great time the idea of not being in university or college was so scary i'd gone straight from foundation straight into degree and i didn't know what i was going to do and in those days college is just just kind of dumped you out the other end mm. you came off the conveyor belt they waved you goodbye and that was it there was kind of no discussion or any sort of um you know exploration of what you might do to make a living yeah that's um, why i still remember your lecture to us in third year I still remember so clearly like it was yesterday how what you said and it made such an impression on so many of us which is why I got in touch with you after that because I'm like where is what is this person doing in our college and how come I don't even know about her <laughs> and then uh it was amazing that you spoke about your experience and uh, what to do after college what what are the options and if you don't want to do an MA do this and do that so I'm yeah. surprised that it never happened for you when you were in college yeah yeah, yeah it just well I, i think they just assumed that you were going to be a famous artist and that the whole thing was based on you know how you would sell your work um you know what you would you know they didn't even discuss whether you would be a teacher or mm. what your income streams were going to be and i think that's because it was just made up of lots of <laughs> i mean i am really generalizing here but people weren't so worried about what they were going to do for money after colleges or maybe you know, they thought they shouldn't then. be talking about the commercial bit because it's so art should be pure and 
there shouldn't be any talk about making a living out of it and it should be yeah um, yeah yeah which I, you know i also i i sort of respect that view because you do we well, do need to really sort of immerse yourself in your making process mm. and the idea that you would then think how am i going to make a living out of this at the end mm. you know it is kind of tarnishing that dream <laughs> but actually realistically you do need to think how will you pay you know will you get a studio could you get together with other people and create a gallery space i mean none of those things we just didn't discuss them you know so we all just waved goodbye and and um, and that was it when i when i um then so so I did my degree, fell off the conveyor belt, had quite a difficult time. I applied to the Royal Academy and, and made a really bad job of my portfolio and application. I'm sure it was good. I don't know. You keep oh, like putting no, yourself no, no. down. I, it, honestly, it was terrible. <laughs> it was it was messy and it was really, yeah, I, I don't think I photographed my stuff very well. That was quite a key thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you make sculpture, you've got to get really good at photography yeah. and, and now um, be able to, to really show that digitally. You know, you've got to really know your staff because things are changing. Yeah, um, but in those days, we had slides, you know, mm. we had glass slides that we sent out. Mm. And, you know, there was none of it was digital. So you had to get really good at photographing your work. And I wasn't bad, but I, there were lots of things that I'd made that I didn't have very good, you know, records of. So, yeah, my application, I didn't, I didn't get an interview. And I absolutely fell through the floor. I didn't know what I was going to do. So... I, the next day after my degree show, went down the job centre and the first job that I saw that was even vaguely art-related art was to be a veneer artist for a company that restored uh, Rolls-Royces and Yeah, Daniels I saw that. Jaguars, yeah. Mm. Um, which was quite a crazy job. Um, and it was working in a, in a kind of factory, but run by um, this guy who was, was very kind. And um, yeah, and I, I learned how to be a wood, wood veneer artist. So, but you would have, you would have um, learned so many things, like skills about, I don't know, one is a veneer, but then with working with wood, with working with um, yeah, carving yeah. and all kinds of things which you could have used in your own artwork. Well, and I, I do think it influenced things I made because I, I later made, um, I made something with uh, chocolate bars um, sliced up. There's a bar that's called a marathon or a Snickers bar. Mm. And I wanted to have this kind of... Um, effect on this massive sculpture that I was making. It was about eight foot by four foot. So I sliced up the marathon bar and laid it onto this um, this sort of shape. And when I'd done it, I looked back and realized it really looked like veneer, like wood veneer. Oh, and I, it, I, it just come out, of, come out of nowhere, you know, that kind of, um, yeah, subconsciously the veneer was still there mm. because I worked for about 13, 14 years at that company. Mm. Um, and the, the meticulousness of time, using tiny, tiny brushes um, after, because my, my my work was quite big installations, quite big sculptures, mm. and doing something that was then very fine with these tiny zero zero brushes, uh, it I quite enjoyed that. You know, it was kind of going from one extreme to the other. So it's like quite um, meditative. So did you were you yeah. having your own like were you doing projects and work for um, in for exhibitions along with your day job? I mean, were you? practicing having your own studio work and stuff i i couldn't afford to have a studio um so after my degree course i started to do because i had that year when i didn't get in i started to do a printmaking course Mm -hmm. and that was at campbellwell so it meant i still had access to i wasn't supposed to use the sculpture um machinery but i did um and also i had got into quite a big exhibition which was traveling around four countries at that time just right at the end of my degree show mm-hmm. um i managed to get into this exhibition 
and it traveled around um, and I had to pack up my work and, and you know send it off in these great big crates and then go to the, the countries to um, install it. So the college wow. helped me a bit. Um, and then after that, I got into the Royal College. Um, yeah, and the first year of that was very, was great fun, but was quite challenging because it was very kind of, um, oh, I think it rested on its laurels a lot. Mm. Um, yeah, and it was It's like you do your own thing, don't depend on us for anything, if we'll, we'll help you as, yeah. as much as we can. But yeah. you're supposed to be like now a an artist who who just uses the infrastructure and exactly yeah. yeah and they wanted you to stay they wanted you to stay where you were when you applied they didn't really want you to develop your work i remember doing oh, some kind of you know changing what i was doing and, and experimenting which is which is how i work mm. and um, one of the lecturers saying you know this isn't what we took you for we actually wanted you wanted you to stay doing what you were doing mm -hmm. because they they wanted people to to churn out people that were then going to be well-known artists because it reflected on them. Yeah. So they didn't really, uh, you know, that wasn't everyone. Um, that was just certain certain tutors. Um, and then after the first year, it, 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 there was a bit of a changing of the guard and um, it became very traditional. So it became really a lot to do with stone carving, a lot of uh, wood carving and anything that was um, female imagery or visual, you know, sort of anything that wasn't traditional just just didn't was yeah it was, it was really hard to do that kind of work mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah and right. yeah I remember Helen Chadwick um coming in one time um because I had a I had got into the Slade and the Royal College um but I made a decision to go to the Royal College and I really don't know why in retrospect because the Slade was very sort of it was run by quite feisty women and and it's I, known I just, for its like of, uh, experimentation and radical nature, and isn't it the slave yeah, more than yeah. the royal college? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. So and, in retrospect, I mm. might have gone there. <laughs> I think, um, but I, but I was at, yeah. Helen Chadwick came in and just said to me, "I don't know what you're doing here, um, you know, and I'm not going to come in here again because you know she was finding the sort of overriding, you know." Um, I don't know. It just is. It, it just was quite a, a sort of male place to be. Mm. Um, yeah, and, and I was there with Jake and Dinos Chapman, Gavin Turk, um, Tanya Kovats, um, and then there was a. Oh, famous Tanya Kovats was with you. Amazing. Yeah, Tanya was there too. Oh, nice. It was a, a guy called Philip Treacy, um, who, who was a hat designer in the fashion department. So, yeah, it was amazing. I mean, it was. I'm, I'm glad I went because it did open doors for me later for sure the Royal College has this name and a bit of an aura about it and I got work in Mexico um, because I was traveling there and the fact that I'd been to you know this this kind of well-known college it, it helped a lot um, so yeah. where did and you work how long were you uh, was your work in Mexico I mean how long did you teach I was there for six months and I um, I was set up to go back I was going to go and teach in um, in a university there I learned Spanish was all set to go back and then uh, just got back to the UK and decided that I really wanted to stay here because also I'm in a band um, so I'm a musician and yeah. during the time that I was away I'd really missed um, playing with my fellow musicians and when I came back um, yeah I just sort of thought I should stay and, and work on an album that we were doing together um, and then try and get a studio and sort of continue my work so I got a residency um, as in those days, because this is a long time ago. I mean, I'm 54. So this was in the early 90s. Mm. 
there were residencies in uh, lots of colleges for um, students and the, the, the one I did was called the Cheltenham Residency and there were five of us. Mm-hmm. There was a printmaker, two painters and two sculptors. And for a year, year, you got a grant and you did a day's teaching one day a week. Wow. Students could come and see what you were doing and open your studios to them. And you got teaching experience and, you know, it was it was win-win because mm. then also there was an exhibition at the end of it. It was amazing. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, um, so tell me about, about your practice. I know it's... Uh, when you say truth to materials, what do you, what does it mean? I know it's a, something that Bauhaus has um, had created, but yeah, how yeah. did you incorporate that into your practice? And uh, what are the different um, ideas that you have when you think about work? So I quite often start with materials, just playing around with quite small scale things, mm. See, seeing um, how they respond, how they react um, and being, being really playful and it not being about an outcome, but about a process. Mm-hmm. So really pushing something. Um, for example, I just made a video about blue tack, um, which was inspired by trying to get students to uh, continue thinking about their work in lockdown when things are really restricted, you know, and people are stuck in, um, you know, flats with um, no access to any workshops. Um, and, you know, there was a point here where really no one was going out at all, yeah. save the world over. Um, and I know that's still the case for lots of people. And um, I mean, talking to, um, for example, a student on a tiny island in Greece who wanted to cast hands using um, metal and various kind of waxes, but had no access to any sort of technical equipment at all, just trying to work out how she could do those kinds of things. Um, and I think I could bring my experience of working with uh, just using just basic materials to see what they do with each other, how they interact. And then my agenda for them would be my own concerns around sort of communication. Mm. I think I, I, I'm I, really interested in how people communicate, how different cultures communicate with each other, what words can mean, the power of language. Um, and those things kind of infuse each other. So it's, um, it's kind of like, um, I'm trying to think of the word, um, alchemy. It's like mm. a kind of alchemy that happens. Right which um, sometimes I'd let the material lead the way. Um, uh, For example, I was quite interested in trying to portray a conversation as um, I was trying to use uh, an example of feeling really inarticulate and not being able to to say something that I wanted to say, just not having the vocabulary, uh, which is perhaps a class issue in that, you know, I I feel like I didn't have a fantastic education. So I might be in a situation where I'm trying to be articulate with very articulate people and finding that difficult. So I made a piece of work that was um, treacle, which is golden syrup, um, yeah. running, ad- running down um, clay channels. So if you imagine making long drain pipes from clay and letting them dry slightly, propping them up on metal rods so that they're off the ground. Um, and so the, the channel is kind of suspended off the ground and then the treacle is pouring down the clay channels. I saw that as speech. Mm. Um, you know, awkward speech that's mm. not, not flowing because what happens is that the moisture in the treacle gets leached out into the clay, which means that the treacle doesn't travel very well. So, and I saw that all as a metaphor. Right. But, you know, obviously other people would see that and not know what on earth it was about. But I didn't mind that either because I, I sort of felt like the physicality of the materials, you know, could kind of speak um, without me. Um, yeah in a way that perhaps performance is slightly more complicated. 
I remember I've seen that image. It's so beautiful with the golden treacle and the silver foil ships on it. So what oh, were the yeah. ships supposed to mean on top of the treacle syrup? So that that piece was about um enslaved Is that people. the same one that you're t- talking about now? No, no that's different. different. Actually, oh, I see. It's the similar materials in the um I quite like using syrups and treacle as a metaphor for kind of flowing I mean in that that instance that I was just describing it was for language. Right. But the um the the treacle piece was a ton of treacle poured onto a floor in a gallery um in London. Uh, and first of all I lined the floor with foil um so that the light would shine up through the treacle. So it was like a, if you imagine a massive treacle lake with a rope wrapped in foil around the edge to kind of contain it. Then I made these silver ships um that were based on all kinds of um sort of galleons and um they they were they were correct you know they were they were sort of accurate replicas was it and the gallery was opposite the Tate and Lyle factory which has uh, lots of links to um enslaved people and the history of the slave trade right so golden syrup and treacle you know was just this kind of currency that meant that sugar plantation to... all that you know the it's all connected isn't it yeah mm. absolutely mm. about transportation mm. so the ships um they're, they're beautiful um and you know from a distance they look amazing but i know it's could have been so beautiful of... the imagery is amazing you can kind of forget the politics behind it when you see the actual installation but yeah, then it's yeah. amazing when you then start thinking about why you well, used it yeah mm. exactly so this so the ships could have been full of human cargo basically so from a distance they look beautiful um as as ships do but then they've got this like horrific secret potentially mm. inside them and they, and then they're on this beautiful beautiful golden syrup which is at the root of a lot of the world's problems mm-hmm. um you know sugar and and you know what it does to people and what it what it meant to yeah people that were taken from one country to be worked to Yeah. So I know I um, I spoke about your practice being sympathetic towards you know, I mean the all the problems of the empire and colonialism and and I know that you work with the you know Bollywood brass band and everything. So you have a lot of um you have a lot of links with um uh, the south asian culture and people south asian and you want to kind of know more about it so where does that come from um well my husband is in um he manages the bollywood brass band oh i see okay yeah and uh, so i we, i've been watching um bollywood films for a long time um oh my as, god as part of research <laughs> um for for music when he's um you know when they're you know finding uh yeah new pieces to work with they're so good i saw one of the videos with the <laughs> which they did over the lockdown it's like precise that is absolutely like so professional really impressive. yeah yeah i mean they are really you know they they are trying to recreate the sound but as on on brass instruments um and yeah they they are they're all really enthralled by that music and it, it, you know it's very powerful it's very powerful and the imagery is absolutely incredible it takes me back to the 80s when or even earlier when you know for weddings they used to use brass bands uh in the procession wedding procession yeah and now it's considered like <laughs> very you know old fashioned and people don't use yeah. it anymore <laughs> but now yeah. we brought it back into fashion that's nice well and in this country i think it's quite a it's it's 
quite a big deal because I feel that it's um yeah I, I like what I like about it is it's very it, it's very so they do processions and they play a lot at Indian weddings up and down the country oh, they do okay. and it, it it it's very much a celebration of a culture at a time when perhaps people feel like they can't celebrate their culture mm. because they're worried about racism mm. and when you've got um 15 musicians in or even in that some people don't understand when you play the song yeah people don't even know where it's coming from and it's well, exactly. it's, it's hard yeah. to explain and you don't want to bother but it's good that you know it's um, yeah. being but I, what I, what I like about that is the when they process down the street you know it's really sometimes they're doing that three or four o'clock in the morning setting all the car alarms off <laughs> Because it's part of the wedding um, ceremony, as I understand, is that some of it Sometimes happens, happens in the night, morning. yeah. And it's really very kind of in your face, you know. It's really here it is, here we are, here's this culture, wham bam, this is it. And I love that because it's not apologetic. The last thing it is is apologizing in any sort of way. It's really it's such a statement of existence, and I just I love it. Reverse colonization. <laughs> yeah. I guess it is, Divya. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So. So what do you say about did you go did you see the I know I'm going to be very controversial but the Philida Balo exhibition which happened in the Royal Academy I liked it but then it's not really truth to materials is it because you think that these things which are like suspended in the ceiling the huge they hair they look heavy but actually I believe they're really really light and uh, they're made out of some like um something so light that you know it doesn't matter even if it fell it was fine so i was so disappointed to to because i feel the same way when you have something which is some which looks like it should really be that but if it's not i feel that i feel kind of cheated so is your uh, thinking the same way too um so to be fair i haven't i didn't see that exhibition mm. i saw uh, one that she had at the hayward gallery mm-hmm. um and i yeah would i i'd be worried with that i think I I get what you're saying about the weight of things. Um I don't have a problem with that because I think she would have taken that into account and it would be that the piece would be about something else. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we'd have to kind of look at specific pieces there. Yeah. And you know, but it, but it might be that it's about the illusion. Um I mean, she is so true to materials that I think there would be Uh, you know pretty solid maybe i read it wrong then <laughs> i just said the word solid right there which is you know that's such a sort of solid sculptural word but there be, there would be solid reasons why she would decide to have it light mm. um because she's now in a situation where if it if it needed to be heavy she she, she could get it yeah it yeah that way. um yeah but i do i think she's an incredible artist and she was a massive inspiration she was in, she was also a fantastic tutor Oh well. yeah, she is. She is. Yeah, amazing. Sure. So, um how do you approach a uh, new work nowadays? I mean, now that you are quite established and quite um sec- set in your studio practice. So, what is it that um is it commission, is it residencies, is it um new ideas? How do you look at new projects and what is the process? How do you start with it? Do you make drawings or Um I uh, I do do I do a lot of drawing but um my drawings are not great in that the drawings are really um about um discovering how to make something so I'm not worried whether they're beautiful drawings or not um so they're not drawings for their own right they they're drawings as a as a part of the process kind of yeah like thinking yeah. out loud kind of thing okay yeah 
Um, and I'm, I'm really interested in, um, I've just been working with Premier Pro quite a lot. Mm. And, I've, I, and I've been interested in how you can manipulate scale and speed and use After Effects um, to, to sort of create massive changes in things. Um, so, for example, this thing that I just made with BlueTac was a film of um, just rolling it, um, but rolling it in quite a specific way. And then seeing how that developed, so I could really, I could really document the journey from just rolling it out, starting off as a beginning process, right through to then making shapes with uh, something that would then potentially become a, a huge installation. Um, and I, I think I now, I didn't get sponsorship for that tree call because I want, I didn't want to have for that last piece that I was talking about. Mm. I didn't approach uh, Tate and Lyle for sponsorship because. I, I wanted to be able to make something that they might not, you know, they, that might be seen as being critical of them. Mm, yeah. So I just bought it myself. But I mean, I have in the past got sponsorship deals uh, for certain materials, and I'm and I would definitely recommend people try that. You know, if you're using a material and you sort of feel like you can make a good case for taking some great photographs of it, saying you're going to have an exhibition, mm. um, and then um, yeah, putting a case together for them sponsoring you. I think lots of companies would be open for that because they're in they're you know if you're doing something interesting with something they're making then why would they not um you know want to help you and yeah, uh, yeah put, like put some for example um, that's true because one of the uh, lectures we had over the lockdown was uh, with a ex-student who's doing quite well for himself so all he does is proposals on uh, CAD and Premiere Pro and sends it off and then something sticks and then they pay you for it and they pay you for all the material that you want to use because based on the all the um, true to uh, life uh, pictures that he makes on Premiere Pro CAD which is amazing I mean he says he spends months on it but then it's worth it in the end because it's all paid for when the residencies happen so is yeah. that what you also do? I don't I haven't done it for a while but yeah I definitely would do that I, I think it's really good to um, just challenge yourself to take a risk and apply for something, especially if you, you know, if you if you if you're in a situation where you perhaps don't have the money to make a thing, or you've got an idea that you feel would really really appeal to a company, I think why not give it a try? You know, what have you got to lose actually? And it could it could really sort of catapult your work into another dimension. Um, if if they were to come through with so for example I made an exhibition once with them um, three hundred thousand cod liver oil capsules that wow. were sent to me by Seven Seas because they were they were out of date anyway mm. um, but they looked they looked you know like they were bought yesterday they were they were fine and I then made loads of work with those um, because I I could persuade them that I was going to have this exhibition and you know that I would put their sort of uh, their name all over it um, which I did actually. Yeah, and um, so I kind of feel like, yeah, it's worth a try. Um, but mm, but yeah. Sarah, tell me, so these are all like installations that they 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 are they are uh, put up for the long for the time that the exhibition is on, and then they have to be dismantled. So how do you deal with that? Because I find it a problem for myself, and then you can never use it again, or maybe you can, but then it it it'll never be the same. It'll be a different kind of installation. And then uh, there's some, how do you sell or do you even make work thinking about selling them or do you even want 
collectors to buy your work what how do you kind of isn't that a dilemma for you about um your work being bought and uh, displayed and uh, used by people who want to you know or in museums so i mean do you even think about the the com- the collectors angle the commercial angle about the work that you do i must admit i don't think about it an awful lot um and i i i have sold uh, works um generally i've sold um photographs of work a lot mm. because if you're making an installation you know you you're really asking a lot of someone to to invest in an installation i mean it just doesn't work like that and a performance piece i mean i've done fair, fair amount of performances and you made costume and pieces that are worn so i've made small scale things which i've sold more of but i i want i once made something which was very organic um it was a balloon filled with milk nailed to the wall um very in a very particular way with um with kind of a couple of other things and a collector said to me i'll buy that if it's in bronze ah oh. make that in bronze and i'll buy it and i just at the time i should have done it because i would have made some money selling him this but the whole point was it was an organic material and i was so running away from sort of solid sculptural sort of that tradition that was the last thing i would have done with it and i i still don't know whether he was kind of just making a point you know give me this organic squishy thing in in a solid proper sculptural material but the the point of it is lost what you're trying to say if you kind of yeah. make it solid isn't it yeah and then i thought well i could kind of double bluff it because i could paint it so that it looked exactly like you know the thing that because what happened with the balloon is after a while the the um what happens with rubber and latex is that fat rots it so if you had this balloon with milk inside the milk uh, eventually the fat in the milk would rot the rot the balloon and it would it would break, break yeah. and then it and it and it was disgusting and that was kind of the point you know you'd have these things that were very pristine and perfect perfect and beautiful and then after a while they just exploded and i really liked that aspect of it so what making it out of bronze would done would be to take away you know that that point that the exciting point. bit of it yeah 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 but i think um when you're doing that kind of large scale work i think you just have to you have to get really good at, at photographing it um and then being able to maybe maybe make books and sell books of the work right um, yeah or films i mean mm. that's what i'm looking at now is um i've gone from i mean i am still very much a hands on person and the f- kind of films i make are about very physical very real tangible um experiences right but then i'm using premiere pro so i'm at the moment because of lockdown i'm sitting down using premiere pro all day <laughs> for nice. days and days nice. and nice. i should have done that oh, and so that's good. really hard you know i mean that's how you but, learn i see i suppose you just have to keep plugging on learning you just you do yeah, yeah you really do and then just pushing your work and seeing i think that's the thing is like you have to get really great at working out what gets you going about your work what's uniquely uniquely you you and your strengths and then just pushing them to the point of breaking um and with materials obviously it's it's easier to carry that metaphor through because you do literally push something until it breaks but i think with your imagery it's also you know it's like you 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 have to take it to the ends of the earth and back you have to just push it to its absolute limits because i feel that's what makes interesting work yeah yeah for me anyway yeah i'm like that too and and then you have people saying that 
oh but you know where is the beauty and i'm like yeah that's the last thing if it become if it is beautiful after i've thought about it and the idea comes to it's fine but i'm not going to make it beautiful just for the sake of it exactly <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, somebody that's saying, why. That's why I was interested in talking to you, Divya, when you were the lone painting student yeah. in the sculpture <laughs> department. Because actually, who cares if you're painting, sculpting, you know, making cakes? Honestly, I well, mean, honestly, if you, imagery, if you want that, I don't know what I would have done because, oh my God, I, people say you should have gone to the sculpture head who was, I think, Sarah... Wine... Sarah Woodfine. 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 Yeah. But... I I was I I'm so glad I came to you. Anyway, so Tell like <laughs> so like you said, one of the people in my college made a sculpture out of lard and had to leave the next day and now it must have completely <laughs> melted. <laughs> the people yeah. people cleaning it will have a tough time. So yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah, so um tell me about your museum um education educator role and also did you enjoy teaching and how does that fit into your work yeah I'm, I loved teaching and I love teaching um, now I mean I'm, I'm a technician now but I'm also um, I'm going to be more of a studio technician which which is going to have more um, tutorials kind of attached to that role. oh is it nice. um, yeah I, I just really like um, I, it's just such a privilege to be uh, watching someone's journey and to be able to suggest things and, um, you know, sort of delve into your experience um, of, of what's worked for you with your own work. Um, the museum and gallery stuff is, uh, and I was also working in schools. I've been asked in residence in um, a school, mm -hmm. uh, well, more than one, but one was quite a long, a long sort of term. And, um, yeah, it's, it's just really great to work in a situation where, so I've been making installations where I'll, I'll make something with recycled materials and then invite the public to come in and contribute something to that. So I'm using other people's sensibilities layered in on top of mine. Um, so I'm kind of providing the bare bones, but then also hopefully the inspiration to allow people to come in and, um, yeah, express themselves. How do you get these ideas, though? I mean, do you even research? Well, with, the, with the museum and gallery collections, they quite often want something that's based around um, a piece that they have because they might have something, you know, a lot of, with galleries and museums, when, they, when you've got these vast collections, they quite often have a, a remit of wanting to, a, a, try and get people from different backgrounds into the galleries and museums, um, so if you if you perhaps give people um, you know like just one thing to really really look at and investigate, then hopefully they they sort of feel empowered to go and I mean it sounds quite patronising but it, it gives them the, the feeling that they could come in see one thing and get to know that that piece really well. I think it can make um, museums more accessible because yeah. you know you're not so daunted by you know I mean for for example I used to work at the National Gallery and there's. I don't know, 3,000, I can't remember how many paintings, God, I can't believe I've forgotten that, but there's thousands of paintings in there. Mm. You know, how do you even start? Mm. If you don't have a, if you don't have an art school background, where do you start? So if you've even got if someone you do, giving you... I mean, it's quite daunting, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, someone saying, well, let's look at the dog in this pink, this painting. You know, why is the dog there? What, what does the dog mean? Let's look at the way it's first painted. Um, you know, could you do something similar to that? Let's see if we can find it. I mean, honestly, this is bringing it right down to a really basic level, but why not? You know, I mean, mm. there, there are just incredible um, paintings. There are lots of ways into those. 
And I'm not just talking about paintings. I mean, working, for example, at the Maritime Museum, mm. there, are, there are objects there that have got this incredible cultural kind of resonance. Um, for like example, difficult this... um, cultural resonance or with all this um, slaves and... There, well, the, and the Maritime Museum has um, lots of objects that relate directly to that history yeah, and it? speak mm. to those histories. Yeah, absolutely. So to be able to run a workshop around exploring that and unpacking that just through one object. For example, there's this um, piece, it's called Drake's Coconut Cup, um, which is Francis Drake brought this back for the Queen. And on top of that is this tiny silver model of the Golden Hind, which is the most, is the, is the um, I can't say anatomically correct, but it's, uh, it's a perfect rendition of the golden hind on the top of it. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the first coconuts ever seen in this country. Mm. So it's totally about that history. And the, the base of this cup is a dragon um, because he was known as, as a dragon. He was kind of a pirate, you know. Oh. I mean, he was going and just to, um, to pillaging the, um, the boats of the Spaniards. The Spaniards were busy taking the gold from South America. Mm. He was going and getting that gold and bringing it back. Mm. And the whole of the wealth of this nation was built on things like that. And it's all in this one object. So as an artist, to be able to go in and explore that with people and children and whoever's there and be able to sort of talk through those histories. and So do you even yeah. explain that or is it just talking about the object? It's Well, we, we go into every aspect of it. Wow, okay. So, yeah. Considering that people say it's not part of the curriculum enough, this way at least they get... It really learn. isn't. It really isn't. But the, the schools schools do go into museums and galleries a lot. So I'm hoping that, that that's that's when artists have a really good role to play because mm -hmm. they can, we can be quite playful around quite, quite difficult backgrounds and histories. And hopefully they go back and learn for themselves some more. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, what is the next project for you? I mean, I know that you've been busy with uh, teaching um, students online, but have you? Yeah. Um, I have, has project? that project with the with um, the church in Netherlands, you had something? Yes. Has yeah. that happened yet? Uh, no, I'm still um, talking through with a couple of other people that, that I'm, I'm interested in working with, uh, showing with. Um, but we would be trying to possibly, I, I would maybe take the treacle piece um, and show it there because, um, you know, Holland has, has also got um, that kind of history yes, around enslaved absolutely. people and, you know, the wealth of the nation. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I would look at also, I'd quite like to work with diamonds there because um, of the, you know, uh, Holland's history with diamonds. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I would like to try and get sponsorship to to put some diamonds in this in this nice. <laughs> But I don't quite know how that's going to go. And then pair that up with putting some in Peckham, so mm -hmm. having diamonds in Peckham. Um, I, don't, I don't really know how it's going to work, but because how, really I mean, how could I? <laughs> oh. I'd have to really really work at trying to get some company to lend me some diamonds so <laughs> well, that I could you. put them in Pekka. But that's that's my plan. Truth to materials. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> nice, nice. It's got to be diamonds. It can't be glass. No. So <laughs> tell me, where, where does your musicality fit into all this? I know you said that you came back from Mexico because you missed being a musician. How yeah. often yeah. do you... Um, I know it's called Sun Trap and it's beautiful and you sing so well. What can't you do, Sarah? I mean, it's amazing. How well I can, I'm, I'm, I'm a really good harmony singer. 
I'm not a lead singer. I love I love singing back backing to somebody else. I'm, I'm I, that's my thing. But uh, that so particular video was you singing alone, isn't it? The new um, one. It, well, I, what I so I'm in a band with um, two really wonderful singers, and I really enjoy um, kind of supporting them and, and weaving weaving harmonies and tunes around what they're singing. Um, and I the imagery of the songs that I write, there it's quite similar. So you to, write the songs. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I don't. I don't write all of them, and I, I co-write with someone, with Mary Mary Wilson, um, at the moment as well. And there's Sue Graves in the band, who's a, got an amazing voice. And um, yeah, it, it, what what we do is uh, we write together. But the songs that I write um, have similar imagery to my sculptures, and so they can be quite obscure. I think they can be quite hard to understand um, and a bit weird. But I kind of quite like that. It's quite uh, folksy. I thought it was quite comforting, and it really made me kind of uh, relax. And for that five minutes, just sit down and think about nothing else, and it felt really good afterwards. So oh, well, I don't lovely. think I don't think it was um, weird or no. But then I'm not. I, that's because you've not heard the earlier stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you haven't heard the really weird ones. Um, yeah, I'll send you some albums of those ones. So how often do you practice, and what are your um, plans for your music uh we have just um made a video uh using well actually i made the video using premiere pro and um an add-on an, an add-on plugin which makes us look like we're hand-drawn kind of like a nice. um, a drawing like an animation kind of effect yeah uh, and um what we want to do next is work um there's a there's a new app called jam kazam which enables you to practice in real time rather than because when you try and sing with someone on a Zoom or by a telephone, it doesn't work because you're, um, I can't even remember, it's like half a beat out constantly. Yeah. Just because of the distance and everything else and the, the you know, the, the different kind of broad, broadband or whatever that's yeah. separating you. Well, Jam Kazam allows you to rehearse. And we did it last week for the first time it worked. It was absolutely amazing. It's the first time we've been able to play in lockdown together since the beginning. So since March. Mm-hmm. And that's fab- that's fabulous. Um, yeah, so what we would do next is we're going to uh, probably try and do another album um, towards the end of the year um, and then make some more films, actually. Make some more films yeah. to go with yeah. the uh, Yeah, because I'm, I'm looking at animating. So I want to work um, with animating, doing um, collage, animation, um, and then just different kind of uh, uh, filming techniques. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Fantastic. that's my plan. Great. So um, the last question would be, what would the advice be for young um, artists uh, in sculpture, any genre, any medium? What would you say, considering what's happening around, they're stuck in other countries, their home countries, not able to come back, they've paid a humongous amount of fees, everybody's so stressed. And um, so what would you say? I mean, what would you say to people who are who still want to be artists and who want to have a career in doing something creative? Well, I think you have to go back to basics and really stick with your subject matter, um, work out your language and then go both ways. So you go back to basics, but also you need to keep up with the latest technologies because... Um, the art world is changing and, you know, we were already going to be looking at travelling less, um, flying less, you know, 
to go and see these galleries and these installations, sadly. But that's a fact, you know, we, that was always going to be an issue. Mm. So um, you need to get really good at, even better at representing your work digitally. So you really need to learn those technologies. You know, now's the time. There's lots of, uh, loads of tutorials. Colleges are set up to try and help students do that. Mm. That's what we've spent um, the last few months doing. So enable you to have those platforms, know those platforms, own those platforms uh, to get your work out there. Um, and it's an exciting time because there are so many opportunities. There are so many ways to now get your work under the noses of m- many more people. Mm. Um, yeah, and those those technologies, they, they can really re- represent your work well. Um, it's really not the same as um, being in a gallery, particularly in- installations, which are about, a, you know, a sort of holistic experience. Um, but those times will come back. And yeah. in the meantime, yeah, you just you have to stick to your guns, um, work out ways to keep your um, your practice going uh, and use it. Look at other people that have used, um, you know, people that have been working, making work in prisons or, um, you know, there's so many examples of people that have been making work in um, lockdown in places where they haven't been able to do what they'd normally do. Mm. I mean, it can be a spur. It can be something that can really push your practice even further. Um, Yeah, I think it's an exciting time. It's scary as well. um, And it's certainly it's challenging. Mm. But then making art has always been challenging. You know, you imagine a time when um, perhaps your husband was a famous artist and you were just his wife. Imagine, Way, way, way back. Or, you know, you're from a culture where people just don't make the kind of work that gets shown in major European galleries what do you do then those people for years and years have been working with those kind of constraints so now it's everybody else's turn to learn out, learn what that's like I mean in India you have people working making amazing artworks in tiny huts and nobody yeah. even buys their work yeah. so if you yeah. put it in perspective yeah it is uh, we, have, we are much more privileged but then yeah, for young people it's daunting alright so um Thanks, Sarah. Thanks a lot. It was so amazing. Sorry about You're the very first uh, <laughs> initial. <laughs> hope that wasn't too rambling. <laughs> no, no, it was so interesting. And uh, I'm so glad that people will get to know about your practice. And maybe I can um, put a clip about of, of your song of, uh, of Santa, yeah. maybe along with yeah. this um, podcast. Yeah. Thank you very much. You're very welcome.